What do you do when life comes crashing down around you? I, mean, I listen to Bria's story and, and, and I'm amazed every time I hear it and, and I wonder, right? How do, you, how do you respond like that? I know in, in a crowd this size, there's some of us are just saying, is that, is that even real? Is that even possible? How do you find, how do you find hope when everything's falling apart around you? Because doesn't hope mean it, it's expecting something good to happen, right? That's, that's what hope means. And we know that hope is, is incredibly powerful. It's, it's the difference between peace and turmoil, right? When our, when our hopes are fulfilled, then we know that there's a, the result of that is, is happiness and it's satisfaction and, and it's peace. But when our, when our hopes aren't fulfilled, it's frustration and it's despair and it's turmoil. See, I think every, every one of us is looking for something to hang on to in a changing economy with shifting job markets, Right, with, with a government that's gone through change, with the, the threat of terrorism, hearing reports of, of stuff happening in Egypt today and in churches there. I mean, people are looking for and, and hoping for something deeper, something bigger, something greater than themselves. A few years ago, George Gallup wrote this, people in many nations seem to be searching with a new intensity for spiritual direction these days. Why is that? One of the key factors prompting this search is the need for hope in these troubled times. I imagine creation didn't go the way God hoped it would either. I can't help but wonder what God thought way back in, in Genesis when he looked down at his creation and he watched them turn their backs on him. Here's God watching as a, as a loving father, watching his children play in this, this perfect playground, this incredible garden, this perfect place that he created for them. In fact, it says in Genesis that in the cool of the evening, God would come down and he would hang out with them. I imagine maybe there are angels fluttering and hovering around as well. All of the animals have been named. It's literally a perfect place with only one rule. One rule, there's one tree, just don't eat the fruit from this one tree because, because with no rules, with no choice, there's no love. And then something, something slithered into the garden, something tiny, something small. And his, in, his children encountered it. And one small decision, one bite, and they were infected. And that infection came with pain, that infection came with separation, and that infection came with, for the very first time ever, death. And things looked hopeless. I wonder what God thought as a father looking down on his son, Jesus. This was the, the week before Easter, Palm Sunday, today, what we're celebrating. As Jesus came into Jerusalem and the crowds had gathered and the crowds were cheering for him because the crowds believed that he was the coming king. They, they hoped in him. He was their hope. And so they grabbed palm branches and they waved them and they laid them down in front of him. And the men would take off their jackets and lay them down, symbolically saying, we submit ourselves to you. And it says that they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And a couple of weeks ago, Mike told us that that meant save us now. Jesus, you are our hope. See, sin had gotten more complicated than just a piece of fruit and some fig leaves. And unfortunately, this infection wasn't contained to just Adam and Eve. It spread. It was passed through them to all of humanity. Everyone born was born with this infection. Everyone born would suffer the consequences of it. Pain, death, and separation from our loving Father. 
And the reality is that none of us could fix it. There's nothing that any of us could do about it. But God didn't quit. God didn't stop loving us. In fact, he sent his son, Jesus, the perfect and only suitable cure for us. Because the cure would require someone's life. It was going to take someone perfect to be the substitute for those of us that were infected. Because of this, Jesus' death on the cross is the single most important thing that has ever happened in history. See, Jesus was our only hope. Hope is more about the object than it is about us, isn't it? We can put our hope in all kinds of things, and it doesn't matter how much hope you have if your hope is in the wrong things. A lot of people, what they do, they, they hope, is, their hope is in what they do. But what we see in the Bible is that hope is actually something we can have. And so the question I have for you this morning is this, what are you hoping for? Is your hope for eternity? Is your hope just for your lifetime? Is your hope just, just for today? Donnie, I just need hope for today. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn with me to John chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can follow along on the side screens or you can download our app as well. And we have notes in there that you can follow along. Today we are finishing our series that we've been looking at in the middle few chapters of the book of John. And in this series, we've been looking at the last few hours of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And today we have arrived at Jesus' ultimate destination. Today we're at the cross. And as we read this, I think this is so amazing that, that John, John is an eyewitness. John is the only disciple that actually was there with Jesus during his trials and was there with Jesus while he was hanging on that cross. The rest of the gospel writers wrote what others saw and, and, and it was credible and, and good reports. But John, John gives us an eyewitness account and, and I love that. Here we are gathered today, 2,000 years later, and we can take a look at this book. And in this book, it gives us an eyewitness account of how much God loved you, how much God loves me and what he did for us. You see, Jesus has already been arrested. He's already gone through a couple of illegal trials. And now it's Friday. He's hours away from the cross and, and Jesus is sent to one more trial and this trial is with the Roman governor, Pilate. In John chapter 19, verse 1, it says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. See, Pilate handed Jesus over to his soldiers to be flogged. This was a, a brutal punishment. They would whip him 39 times because they believed that on the 40th one that the prisoner would die. And so they came as close to death as they possibly could. And according to Luke's gospel, Pilate's intention in this is just to teach Jesus a lesson and then to, to release him, to, to set him free. This was another attempt by Pilate to set Jesus free. See, he knew that Jesus was innocent. There was no crime that Jesus had committed, and, and he desperately wanted to free his own conscience. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it because it was a part of God's plan. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the soldiers, they, they didn't miss an opportunity to add some humiliation to Jesus while he was while he was in, in captivity, while they had a chance. And so they jammed a crown of thorns into his head. 
And they grabbed a, a purple piece of cloth and they, and they put it on him, purple representing the color of royalty. And it says that they spit on him and they put a bag over his head and repeatedly slapped and punched him in the face. The entire time mocking him saying, hey, Jesus, if you're God, then tell us who just hit you. And they'd hit him again. Now who did it, Jesus? Who just punched you that time? If you're God, if you know everything. This was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 50, verse six. He said, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Verse three said that this happened again and again. They made a game out of this, out of hurting and abusing Jesus, and they repeated it over and over and over again. Verse five, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. See, Pilate hoped that by seeing Jesus, by seeing him in this condition, seeing him beaten, seeing him bloody, that that would be enough to elicit some kind of pity from the crowd. Not pity for Jesus, because Pilate doesn't really care about that. Pity for himself. Because he was in an, an awkward position. He was in a difficult place. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but this crowd was calling for him to be crucified. He hoped that they would look at Jesus. They would see him all beaten and broken and bloody and recognize that he was no threat to anyone and that they would just let him go. But the crowd, the crowd wasn't convinced. The same crowd that just a few days earlier was gathered around cheering for him, excitedly hoping that he would be the king is now turned and, and chanting, crucify, crucify. Verse six, but Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders instead said, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. You see, Pilate knew that the Jewish leaders couldn't crucify Jesus. That's why they came to the Romans in the first place. They needed their help. But the Jewish leaders were right. There was a law in the book of Leviticus that said that anyone who, who blasphemed the name of the Lord should be put to death. But here's the problem. The problem is that Jesus wasn't violating that law because he was telling the truth. They just, just didn't believe it. Verse eight, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Now, we don't know who Jesus is talking about right there. We don't know if he was referring to Judas or if he's referring to the religious leaders or if he's referring to Satan himself. But we see that Pilate is very afraid. What is it that Pilate's afraid of? It could be one of or, or a combination of a few things. One is that the Romans believed in human deities. And I wonder as this trial goes on, I wonder as, as Pilate spends more and more time with Jesus, if he's not starting to, to wonder himself. Because he's never seen a prisoner respond the way Jesus has been responding. He's never seen anyone cry out. He's never seen anyone not blame other people. He's never seen anyone take this abuse. And he knows there's no crime. He didn't do anything. There's no proof. He is innocent. And yet he's taking this. And I wonder if he looked in Jesus' eyes and he just saw something different. And I wonder if Pilate's questioning what he believes. 
Second is that maybe according to Matthew's gospel, Pilate's wife had had a dream about Jesus. And it says that she was influencing him to have nothing to do with him. She said, you need to wash your hands of this man. You need to get as far away from him as possible. There is something about him. Maybe it was the third reason that it was Passover. Jerusalem is extremely crowded and Pilate may have been afraid that with this angry mob and and this crowd here and all of these people in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, that what if a riot broke out? And so he tries to intimidate Jesus with his power, but Jesus corrects Pilate and he lets him know who's really in control. This is so important because three times Pilate declares Jesus not guilty. If you add it up together in all of the gospels, seven different times, but he couldn't set him free. Why? Because God had a plan. And Jesus was in control. See, Jesus became human to fix the brokenness of humanity. This could only be fulfilled through the sacrifice of one life for another. Leviticus 17 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. You see, Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood, would provide salvation for anyone who put their faith in him. If Jesus doesn't die, we aren't forgiven. If Jesus doesn't give his life, our lives end in death. Our lives end in separation from our loving Father. We have no hope. Verse 12 through 27 You'll see that Pilate and the Jewish leaders go back and forth and back and forth until finally Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And the soldiers took Jesus and they forced him to carry his crossbeam after the whipping and the beating that he has taken to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. There's a picture of it here. Many scholars believe that this is the place where Jesus would have been taken. You can see the imagery in there. And that that's where the crucifixion would have happened. The crossbeam would have been strapped to Jesus' back. It would have weighed somewhere between 100 and 150 pounds. It was heavy. And with the beating and the whipping that Jesus had endured, the loss of blood that he had suffered, he was weak and he couldn't carry the load anymore. And John doesn't tell us this, but the other gospels tell us that someone else came and carried the cross the rest of the way. Verse 18, there they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And Jesus went to the cross. Verse 28, later, knowing that everything had now been fulfilled and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Wayne Stiles, in his book, Walking in the Footsteps of Jesus, wrote this about one of his trips to to Israel. He said, our guide at the preserve, a passionate Jewish lady named Helen, picked a small hyssop branch and led us to a tall cedar of Lebanon, donated by the Lebanese army. We hushed to listen. The cedar of Lebanon is always an import, she began. It will grow to a height of well over 120 feet. It is a symbol of haughtiness and pride and glamour. We huddled in closer so that we could hear over the noise of the military training in the distance. We remember the story of David and Bathsheba. And we have a hint in Psalm 51 of David's real sin when he asked, cleanse me with hyssop that I may be pure. She held up the hyssop branch with its white blossoms. Rarely did flowers bloom in May, she told us. David in his prayer is asking for forgiveness, not for the sin of adultery, not for the sin of murder, 
but for the sin of pride. Cleanse me with hyssop, humility, so that I'll remember who I really am. I am your servant, not a great big fancy king. She even mentioned how hyssop was used when Jesus died on the cross, explaining he is the symbol of humility among men. So I thought about her metaphor and how scripture takes the hyssop illusions much further than just a, a symbol of humility. The hyssop's bloom served as an excellent sponge and they found their use in several of the Israelites' um, sacrificial rites, beginning with the applying of blood of the Passover lamb to the doorway in Exodus. In fact, in the 12 uses of hyssop in the Bible, 11 occur in the context of purification. David's prayer uses hyssop as a, as a metaphor that, that indicates the means for his forgiveness through the blood of a sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 22 says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I think it's so significant that the only mention of hyssop in the gospels comes at the very moment that Jesus completed the work of redemption on the cross. Verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. So significant. Not I am finished. This wasn't the end of Jesus. He said, it is finished. The purpose that I came to fulfill has been fulfilled. The reason that I came, the reason that I am here, I have completed it. See, the cross is the single most important event in history. What do you hear when you hear that, that those words, it is finished? See, for a lot of us, it depends on our, on our circumstances, doesn't it? Maybe it's, it's, I've finished the project. Maybe it's a conversation you have with your kids. Have you, have, you, have you done your laundry yet? Have you folded it? Yeah, it's finished. Have you finished your homework yet? Yeah, it's finished. Maybe that when dinner is over and it's time to leave the table, right? That it, it is finished. Maybe you've heard it in the context of a relationship. I, I just can't do this anymore. I, I can't be in this relationship. It is finished. See, it all depends on the circumstance. What do you hear when you hear Jesus say, it is finished? The Greek word finished means that it is accomplished. It has been fulfilled. It has been paid in full. It's more than just a word of Circumstance. See, it's not just a word that points to the end of something. It points to the completion of something. It means that the debt is paid, the job is done, the race has been run, it is finished. The greatest need of mankind has been met. What's finished? We are. We're finished. We're forgiven and now God can begin to make us back into his workmanship. What he intended from the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve in, in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with him. That's what God did on the cross through Jesus. He completed his plan of salvation for our lives. It is finished. In fact, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished at least five things. Here's the first one. The first is this, is that Jesus' death removed our sin and guilt. The guilt of our sin, Jesus took it away. He placed it on himself and he removed it from us. He satisfied it by his death. John 1:29. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus takes away our sin. The second thing, that Jesus accomplishes through his death is he removes God's wrath. See, by dying in our place for us, 
Jesus removes God's wrath from us. In fact, he goes even further. He doesn't just remove God's wrath, but he actually turns it into our favor. Now, now, don't miss that, right? God's wrath, he doesn't turn it into God's love. God already loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die for us. What Jesus does is he takes God's wrath and he turns it into our favor, into our blessing. We now get to experience and understand and appreciate everything that God had originally intended for us because we're now back in a relationship with him. 1 John 4 says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Third thing is that Jesus' death reconciled us to God. See, reconciliation refers to the removal of the separation between us. See, our, our sin created alienation. It created a separation, a gap between us and God because a perfect God can't hang out with imperfect creation. And what Jesus did is he brought us back together. He bridged that gap. Romans 5 says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Jesus' death provided our redemption our sin imprisoned us. It, it put us into captivity. We were declared guilty. And the price that is paid for someone who's in captivity, someone who's been imprisoned, is called a, a ransom. Jesus paid our ransom. There are three things that we had to be released from. The, the curse of the law, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. And Jesus accomplished all three of those things for us. He redeemed us from those. And finally, the fifth thing is that Jesus' death offers us life. Jesus died instead of you. He died instead of me. He became our substitute. We deserve to die because of our sin, but he died instead of us. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Jesus proved how much God loves us. The gospel is not clean up your life, it's not get your act together. It's not be perfect and then you can come to God. That's what religion teaches. If you do enough good things, enough right things, then maybe you can earn your way back into God. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, Jesus loves you. He paid the price for you and he came and met you where you were and he redeemed you and restored you and forgave you. We simply get to receive that gift through faith and once we do, then we begin to follow wherever God leads us. Verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. You see, those are they're simple words, but what do they mean? That he gave up his spirit. It, to me, it, it means this, that they didn't take Jesus' life from him. He gave up his spirit. He decided when he was going to the cross. He decided what he was going to say while he was on the cross, and he decided when he was going to die on the cross, and he gave up his spirit. If you read the rest of chapter 19, you'll see that they proved that Jesus was dead, and then they immediately took him down and, and buried him because the Sabbath was the next day. But here's, here's the incredible part. Here's the good news. Here is the hope for us. Jesus didn't stay now, I'm not allowed to talk about that this weekend. Mike gets to talk about that next weekend. And so you gotta come back to hear the rest of the story and that's when it gets, it gets really good at that point. And we just have to kind of stop there. But, but here's what I want to, to leave you with. Here's what I want you to know today. At the cross, we trade our guilt for God's 
grace. And in Jesus, we find hope. Let me close with this, uh, the time where I, I experienced this. It was the day that Ty was born. Monday, November 5th, 2001, that Sunday night, we celebrated that the New York Yankees lost the World Series. I don't remember who won. It doesn't really matter. The Yankees lost, and it was a good night. And Ty was born the next morning. Now, Laura went through a thing called silent labor. And silent labor is this. She was in labor for several hours, but she had no pain at all. And everyone that's ever given birth now hates her, right? You're like, that's just, that's not fair. And it was incredible. It was all good until her water broke that morning, right? And then she got slightly possessed in a cute way, but, but slightly possessed, right? It went from, this is so easy to get me drugs now, right? Like this is, it's on. And so they told her that she actually couldn't have any more drugs. And so she decided at that point she was going to push him out with one push and we were just going to end this thing. She's a, my wife's a beast in a, in, in a complimentary, like sexy kind of way, but, but she's, a, she's a beast, right? It's crazy. And everything seemed fine, right? Ty came out and the doctor caught him and, and they, they, he was crying and they brought him to me. And, and for the very first time, right, as I, as I held him, we owned our very own Vaseline smeared weasel, right? It was, it was just this fantastic little thing that... It was there. And I just remember thinking to myself, don't fumble him, don't fumble him, don't fumble, just hold on tight, right? And the doctor came over and the doctor said that the tie had meconium in his lungs. And, and what that is, is it's the early feces that's passed by, passed by an infant just after they're born normally. But sometimes, sometimes they, they pass it while they're still in the uterus. And they, that happens because somewhere in that delivery, the, the child is under stress. And one of, the, one of the symptoms, one of the results of this is that they come out and they have to work really, really hard to breathe. And so they passed Ty to me and, and they told me that he had fluid and bacteria in his lungs. And they said, we need him to cry really, really hard because we need him to strengthen his lungs and try to force that stuff out. And so they handed him to me and this is what they said. They said, Donnie, we need you to squeeze his head and make him cry. I was like, say what? Right? <laughs> I mean, I've been a dad for like six and a half minutes, right? Like seven minutes ago, I'm like, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Can we change our minds? Like, how does this? And now I'm holding my son and I will do anything for him. And they say, you need to squeeze his head and make him cry. And my response was, I'm going to squeeze your head and make you cry, right? That's the, that's the dance we're going to dance right now. Nobody's touching my kid. This isn't happening. And I understood, right, I understood that by hurting him, it would actually help him. But emotionally and physically, I, I just couldn't do it. And so 30 minutes after he was born, they came and they took him and they said, we need to take him to the NICU. And we got one last hug and one last kiss and they put him in a giant plexiglass box and they wheeled him out of our room. And we were left wondering, what do we, what do, we do now? And the nurse came and said, just wait, we'll get him settled and then we'll come and get you when we're ready. And we were left with so many questions. Is, is he in pain? He, I mean, he didn't look like he was in pain. Is he going to be in pain? Are, are we gonna get a chance to, to hold him? Can I have one more chance to try and squeeze his head, right? I, I think maybe I can do it. Now that I know the consequences, maybe I can do it this time. Laura and I finally got a chance to go up to the NICU and, and we walked up to the big glass window and we waited and we watched and we saw our, our son sitting there with, laying there with, with stuff taped all over him and an IV antibiotics going into him and a giant Tupperware cake lid over his head, feeding him constant oxygen. You see, during Ty's grand entrance into this world, he encountered something tiny, something small. And now he had an infection in his body. And there was nothing that Laura or I could do about it. After four days, 
in the NICU, we finally got news as to what was next. Now, please hear my, my heart in this. I recognize now that this is so small compared to what so many of you have experienced with your children. And I'm not trying to make our story more dramatic than it was, but this was our first, it was our only child. We didn't know what was happening. And for us in that moment, that separation, that the uncertainty, it was dramatic for us. But they came and told us that the antibiotics had worked, his, lung, his lungs had strengthened, the, his O2 levels had stabilized. And they told us that we could take Ty home. And with that incredibly good news, I remember in that moment, standing outside that NICU, feeling two very different emotions and, and, and feelings and responses. One was hope. Ty's infection was gone. I couldn't fix him. I, I couldn't do anything about it. Someone else had to do it for us. And as a result, now I understood I had this sense of, of joy and relief and gratitude. See, we handed over an infected child and we received back a healthy baby boy. But at the same time, there was a, a second emotion, a second experience that I felt. And I don't know how else to describe it other than just a, a burden. I felt this deep sense of pain and, and despair. You see, Ty was almost eight pounds, and so in the NICU, he was huge. He was this giant child compared to the premature babies that were in there, many of them struggling and fighting for their lives, and my heart was absolutely broken for those children. And my heart was broken for those parents. What about them? Who's, who's going to fix them? Who's helping them? When do they get to go home? And it was this incredible dichotomy. We're going to close with a song today, but as we do, I want you to think about a couple of things. The first is this. Do you want hope? Do you want that joy? Do you want that relief in your life? Because the answer is Jesus. You know that you can't fix yourself. If you could, you would have done it by now. You know that, that you're just, you're tired. We're, we're fatigued. For some of us, maybe this is the very first time we've ever heard how much God loves us and what he's done for us. For others, we've heard this a, a lot of times. But today, it's just, it's just making sense, and God's just doing something in your heart. Jesus is the cure for the thing that has infected us. We can't fix ourselves. The incredible part is that God loved us so much that he took care of it for us. And we just have to receive it by faith. The second thing is this. For those of us that would say, Donnie, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian, right? I, I know the hope that's found in a relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Are, are, you, burdened, are you burdened for others that don't? Family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, students, are you broken? Is your heart broken by the fact that there are people in your life that don't know this hope? They don't know Jesus the way you know Jesus. Jesus has died for them, but they don't know it. And their lives haven't been changed by his grace and by his forgiveness and by his mercy. And right now, they don't have that hope. Because the way we live our lives has the incredible opportunity to show them Jesus. In fact, this... Next weekend is, is one of the greatest opportunities that you're going to have to invite someone to come and to hear about the hope that is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The music's going to be incredible. I, I've had a sneak preview of Mike's message. It, it's going to be unbelievable. And so I would challenge you to come next weekend, but don't come by yourself. Bring someone. Invite someone. This is an opportunity for us to love people who are are far from Jesus, but to, to help them, to encourage them, to tell them that, you know what, there's something out I want you to hear because I care about you, because I, I love you. 
I want you to hear about the hope that's changed my life. I want you to hear about Jesus. Will you bow with me as we uh, close in prayer? Today, there's some of us that, that are here, and God brought you specifically for this moment, and you can sense it. You know on the inside that something's happening. What is that? It's the power of a loving God drawing you toward himself because you recognize today that you need him. You need his grace. You need his mercy. You need his forgiveness, and that's why you're here today. It's your time to say, God, I've, I've sinned, I've, I've messed up, I have this infection in my life, and I need your forgiveness. And so by faith, today I'm giving you my life. If that's where you are, will you just pray this just in the quiet of your heart? Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Jesus, forgive me, change me, make me brand new. I believe that you died for me and that you rose again so that I could live for you. Fill me with your spirit so that I could follow you, so that I can know you, so that I can serve you with the rest of my life. Thank you for new life. Today I give you mine. Thank you, Jesus. And Father, we, we thank you for your incredible love. It would have been so easy for you just to have turned your back on us in that garden and said, I, there was one rule. I gave you this perfect place. We had this perfect relationship. And you turned your back on me. God, it would have been so easy for you just to wash your hands of us and to say, that's it, I'm done, I quit. You're on your own, figure it out. But God, you didn't. And so there's no mess in our lives that's too big. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how far away from you we may feel. You loved us. You love us. So much that you sent your son to die for us. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for what you went through, for what you endured on that cross, for taking my sin, our sin upon yourself, for the first time ever being separated from your father because you loved us that much. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. And so God, we pray. We find our hope in you, Jesus, and nothing else that our hope is found in you. And God, will you burden us with those around us, those in our lives that don't know that hope. And Father, may we recognize the privilege that we have of living in a way, of sharing in a way, of serving in a way, of loving in a way, of inviting in a way people into that journey, of letting them know that you love them and that you've done everything for them. And they just get to receive that gift. God, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for the hope that's found in you. And it's in your name we pray.